This episode of Empire is brought to you by QuickNode. QuickNode is an end-to-end blockchain development platform that makes building Web3 apps super easy. No matter what you want to build, you can effortlessly develop any application by leveraging their elastic APIs. Go to quicknode.com, use code Empire. You'll get a free month on their feature-backed build plan. That's right. Go to quicknode.com. You'll get a free month to start playing around. You'll hear more about QuickNode later in the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Empire. You've got Santi and me, and then we are uh, very lucky to be joined by Rune. Um, Rune, welcome to Empire, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, for those who don't know Rune, Rune is uh, one of the, uh, is the founder of uh, Maker Maker DAO, um, which has uh, two brands that you probably all know, Maker and Die. Uh, Rune, I think you are one of the longest running founders in DeFi, maybe the longest running founder. Um, uh, and which I think you've been building Maker for like eight, eight and a half years now, which is pretty remarkable. Um, we are here, I want to discuss Maker's Endgame. You just posted, uh, you first proposed this in May of 2022, and then you just published the five phases of the Endgame a couple of weeks ago, and I really want to talk about that. But I think it's important to just almost set the scene here um, and talk about the first eight years of Maker. Um, and you know, I know Santi, you've worked pretty closely with Maker when you were at Parify. Um, but Rune, maybe if you can just kind of set us up with like the last eight years and like what led us to the end game? How did, how did we get here? The really big theme of the, I mean, this entire sort of history of Maker that's led uh, to where we are now, right, is this kind of, um, the sort of the ebb and flow of sort of trying to become a DAO and trying to become fully decentralized and then like trying to actually do things. Uh, so it started out with, in the very early days of, of Maker, right? Like literally all the way back in like early 2015, it was this like hyper ideological libertarian project, right? To sort of try to basically uh, kind of transplant the, like sort of the ideals of BitShares onto Ethereum um, and building a kind of a, a stable coin based on the original BitShares model. And, and yeah, basically into the Ethereum ecosystem. And, so we started off as this like, yeah, like super ideological, um, maybe like almost like conspiracy theorist type uh, group of early crypto people. Um, and we were like just obsessed with like DAO concept. Um, actually, funnily enough, even though we were like super ideological, back then we were still considered sort of boomers and, and, and like way more boring than like the average like crypto person just because the whole space was so extreme back then. Um, but so what we did was we like ran the entire project uh, through these like open Sunday governance calls. So I think we, I think we called them the governance calls. And so basically it was like every Sunday we'd have these like calls at a set time on TeamSpeak. And then all decisions were made unanimously by whoever showed up to those calls. Uh, and we actually ran the project like that for like two years. So all like decisions related to like payments and so on was done through these like open calls where anyone could join. And like, if you were some like random person, you could like jump in and just like veto everything. And we didn't have a mechanism to even handle that. Um, but uh, but we, what we did have was like lots of like super geniuses and crazy people and early crypto developers and all of that. And um, yeah, I mean, it was great, uh, but, and we got a lot of like research done, a lot of thinking, a lot of philosophy done, but we couldn't really sort of kind of build an actual product, right? Because this kind of, uh, you know, uh, yeah, like total decentralization 
with no structure whatsoever, especially like absolutely at the earliest stage in a project like this. Just it just didn't work out basically. And actually, what what did end up happening was that, um, as had always been my goal, I sort of like pulled out of the project uh, after about like two years or so, and I was like, oh, it runs itself now. The Sunday calls they totally like run themselves, right? But then what happened was that people like it just became impossible to reach consensus because I had sort of had this role of like the one that was sort of you know, like herd the cats kind of, right? And then once I pulled out, then eventually what happened is like, people just stopped getting paid, basically. Like it stopped to be possible to make decisions around like paying the contributors. So nobody was pay was getting paid. And I had to like come back into the project. And then this is kind of like the first example of like, kind of like ebb and flow where then as I came back and I was like, okay, I can't, this, we got to figure out a way to get forward. So that's how we set up the, um, the Die Foundation. And we basically were like, okay, we'll just scratch the whole like pretend DAO thing with Sunday calls and whatever, because that's something for like, I mean, the product needs to be done first before you can do something like that. So we build the foundation as like a proper sort of um, organizational structure, right? With like a leadership team and a hierarchy and all of this stuff. And then it was sort of set up for like, it needs to deliver the protocol and then turn it over back to some kind of DAO structure. Um, and that then took about, yeah, I think it was like three years or something of the foundation. Um, and we delivered, uh, you know, simple, uh, well, SAI, uh, as it's called nowadays, a single collateral diet, right? In, in uh, uh, December 2017. And then it sort of culminated in the launch of MCD, which is the current version of, of DAI in uh, also like end of, end of year 2019. Um, and then after MCD was launched, it was sort of, the foundation was almost done with its work, uh, but it did sort of stay on for another, like one and a half years to basically maintain and, and uh, kind of finalize the protocols security basically. And then we sort of went back into this mode of, okay, we're dissolving the foundation and we're gonna like sort of hand it over to the community, right? Uh, and, and what the sort of the community came up with to, run the system once the foundation was gone was the core unit system. Um, and uh, the core unit system was basically, I mean, in hindsight, what it basically was, was these like uh, black boxes that got a bunch of money. So, and, and what the expectation was kind of like, I mean, it was still kind of, I guess, very ideological and libertarian from the early days, some kind of idea of like the free market was sorted out somehow. So we thought that somehow, you put a construct like that in the hands of the people and then they'll use it to self-organize these like very efficient and market driven and, and, you know, processes that are, that are going to do what's best for the DAO. Um, but yeah, what ended up happening was of course, well, I mean, this is like the big realization I think of like, I think many people across crypto and across DAOs is that DAOs are intensely political, right? So when you do something like, here's a thing you can use to like take money out of the system. Uh, you're you're creating this massive incentive to, to to sort of have people to basically play this political dynamic that occurs about like like then who gets the money, right? And if this person gets the money, then does this other person get the money? And yeah, um, so uh, sort of coinciding with the bull market, uh, Maker built up this massive budget of something like forty. $45 million per year or something like that uh, through the core units. 
And initially, this was this was easy because uh, the bull market made sure that the protocol was raking in tons of money, uh, and and everything was like good times, right? It was it was the big bull market, and MKR price was exploding. Um, but then, as the bull market sort of ended, first of all, the the income started drying up in the system, and secondly, it became clear that there wasn't really like a connection between paying out the money and getting actual results from these core units, right? Because increasingly it was more like, it was a question of politics of like who's getting paid, not so much like what's getting paid for, right? It's more like a question of who, right? Uh, which is the age old again, like, I mean, that's how politics works, right? That's also how like internal uh, politics often works in, in companies and budgeting and so on. So that's kind of the, the thing that, that led towards, we have to actually solve like this question of how to, how to allocate resources and governance, how to run a balanced governance system. Yeah. So this has been, um, <clears throat> so in my mind, Maker was super interesting uh, in the early days of Parify, where we sort of identified that you were the backbone of, of DeFi. Without Maker, DeFi wouldn't have taken off. You know, you needed to have a stable unit of account. And Maker, in my mind, has been a pioneer in many models. Uh, and governance has been something that has been heavily criticized, which is super stagnant. No one participates. And there's very few people that actually vote. And a lot of the MKR supplies held by a few insiders that initially funded the project, but don't vote and don't participate. And it's a complicated system that if you're not tracking it, if you're not in those Sunday calls, you wouldn't have had any semblance or really appreciation of what was going on. So like, I want to get your thoughts on, like people are very critical of DAOs because people don't show up don't care. If things go their way, fine. But if things don't go their way, they complain, but they will still not vote and will still not be active. So what is that? What's your view on, and now you want to do this like total reorg of creating five different sub DAOs. And it initially from the outside in, it makes me skeptical because I don't think that that's like a viable structure, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on generally governance and how to solve this problem. And if it is even viable to assume that people are going to participate. As the money increases, the political kind of forces become more intense. And once that realization like dawned on me that like, I mean, humans are, you know, they'll, I mean, humans are humans, right? They'll like follow their incentives. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that means in this context, that means politics. Um, and it's like very, yeah, I mean, politics kind of sucks, right? A lot of people got into doubts because they don't like politics and so on. And then to find out that actually it's a big giant political game almost is uh it, it's a little bit uh yeah like um uh disappointing right and my reaction was actually to be like okay well i guess it just can't be done like i was really sort of at one point i just like i was like i wrote off DAOs entirely i was like look it can't be done and the reason is because like politics is already paid like you know an impossible problem to solve and then you add like uh, you know, uh, anonymity to it and, and the internet, everything is over the, the internet, right? No one's even meeting in person and there's all this like speculation and there's all this like crypto craziness and it just seems like an, an insurmountable toxic cocktail and you just, it's just not going to work. Like put a bunch of people in a room and give them some crazy high stakes money game and it's going to descend into like, insufferable politics and the only people who want to play it are the people trying to exploit it right so yeah so actually just like actually it was like okay look 
it, it you know it can't be done right it uh, and and I was I was ready to like leave. I mean, I wanted to leave entirely. And then the problem is what I realized is I couldn't even leave because because of the voter apathy problem, like my own MKR was like unsellable basically. Because if I tried to like sell my MKR, I would like collapse the system and I would I, I would lose everything, right? So like the only choice I had, okay, I have to figure out how to fix it then. And the solution to it is to like understand human nature and basically build kind of mechanisms around it. Really, just like you do in, I mean, a democracy or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. And just like a democracy is like messy and whatever, right? Like has tons of downsides. It still like works and it's still the sort of the least bad uh, approach. But in a DAO with like a more narrow focus, like the more focused the kind of the, the task of a DAO is, the more it becomes possible to make it somewhat uh, more like, I would say, pure in a sense, right? That you can sort of, you can you can tolerate and you, I mean, you can sort of engineer it to have much much less of this like human uh, issues, and the the key to it all like the kind of the fundamental um, uh, silver bullet if there was such a thing right is just like rules and documentation and processes. Yeah, the hard thing about putting rules in place is that things change. So at Parify, we were one of the initial proponents of adding USDC as collateral in that transition from single to multiple collateral die. Hugely controversial, but I don't think if we had passed that uh, during Black Thursday, it was, right, when everything collapsed, like Maker felt super precarious at the brink of like extinction <laughs> if you didn't add USDC as collateral because die had depegged and it was spiraling out and the keepers, like there was the whole things that were failing and our opinion at the time and in the forum was that we had to introduce USDC. It was something that was hugely opposed by so many people. Difference was Parify was actually one of the larger kind of players in, in the stablecoin game at the time and probably still is. So like when you talk about setting rules in place, it becomes hard. Like how, how do you know which rules are going to work today? And the rules that you're putting in today are going to work in like six months because crypto is just a very adversarial, ever-changing environment. It's not like the the constitution of the United States is like certain values, principles that we can all agree on, you know, don't, but crypto is sort of, it's difficult to codify these things and rules. Um, so I'm curious in practice, like how does this actually work and create a system that is, you know, sound, but also adaptable to this ecosystem that is constantly changing. I mean, what's basically happened is those fundamental questions around uh, the, the ideal principles for for maker um at this point they've been they've been settled essentially right and and i mean one thing to point to is like yeah the fact that for sure you know people aren't going to do anything if you don't pay them so we need to have all these like paid uh you know contributors right that's what's i mean that was not apparent like eight years ago we really thought we would never need that that was it was like a fundamental assumption is you don't need to do that people just volunteer when they hold the token just like they do in bitcoin right and as for the real assets i mean yeah it's also just like i mean it's been it's it's the market has proven it right i mean we've seen rye right and and how rye is it totally works but it comes at a great cost of adoption uh to have like pure crypto collateral uh, or lusd or whatever right like all these like these projects that basically sacrifice um peg and scalability for for decentralized collateral, right? And then you've got, um, I mean, yeah, right, Terra Luna and something, like right? proving that you can't, 
the band reality either. So you just end up back in this thing. If you want to offer something, uh, you know, something that 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 has a use experience similar to the U.S. dollar, you need to be like, um, you know, you need to be connected to assets that that can guarantee their value in terms of U.S. dollars, right? And if you don't want that, then I mean, if you want to sort of untether entirely from the U.S. dollar, then you can't then you can't offer something that is stable relative to the U.S. dollar as a product, right? And so yeah. so these principles are, yeah, I mean, basically. It's actually like there could be more fundamental principles like this, right? That that fundamental sort of trade-offs, fundamental uh, sort of visions that that uh, that we may not be aware of or something like that, right? That that will materialize in the future. But from my perspective, right now, it like it's no longer the case that there is some like giant unanswered question uh, in Maker, and mm-hmm. in all cases, like what's completely clear and like undeniable. Uh, to me is that you have no choice but to basically settle on this is the this is the vision these are the principles if you want to achieve decentralization like you simply cannot have a situation where the principles themselves can change in a decentralized environment and that's because mm-hmm. if some i mean well and the reason is politics right because if some group or entity or faction or whatever if they're able to kind of like modify the principles then it like one of the principles they can modify is always going to be to what degree uh should this system be decentralized mm-hmm. and then human nature and human incentives and all of that is going to kick in and you'll always see then what i call it i mean the slippery slope misalignment like the slippery slope towards well if it's been possible to do a small power grab then you can do slightly larger you know then you now you've got more power now you've got more centralization and that mm-hmm. That that asymmetry allows you to just more easily sort of slippery slope slide towards centralization, right? And this is yeah. kind of what I actually saw again and again, right? It's kind of like my big surprise was every time, like, like I was always the big sort of, um, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, what do you call that, right? The big elephant in the in the doubt, right? That had this like centralizing effect over the years. So originally, there was always a sense of like, oh, if I pull back out, if I stop being involved in the project, then it will become more decentralized. That seems sort of like natural logic, right? But it, the problem is, you know, it's this concept of a power vacuum, basically, that you end up with, mm-hmm. with, with um, you know, with sort of uh, the possibility, I mean, and sort of not just the possibility, but the incentive and kind of the the opportunity for others to to um, kind of build the kind of system they want to build. And the big difference between someone like me and then almost anyone else that that uh, uh, could be sort of like deeply involved in, in maker governance and, and have a, a big impact on it in the long run, right, is that like I, I have such incredibly sort of, uh, I guess you could say, irrational exposure to the MKR token, right, that for me actually like long-term success of maker uh, it's way more important for me than whatever sort of random value I could sort of extract out of the project, uh, you know, through my, my, through like a governance proposal or something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I, can I ask you a question just on, on this point of governance? So like, uh, for our listeners, they might be wondering, so like MKR, that token is a governance token. It allows you to vote on proposals. Now in this new system, which we'll get to in a minute, you're codifying a lot of rules that over the time 
we've come to learn some principles of how to build a stablecoin protocol, which I appreciate. At the moment, the value of the MKR governance token is roughly 650 million. You have value locked in the maker system to mint uh, the stablecoin is roughly 7 billion. And so I'm curious, the value of MKR has collapsed on a number of metrics, not just the absolute level, but also relative to ETH. What is what does that tell you? Like, why is MKR underappreciated? What's the ratio? So that's question two. What's the ratio between the value of MKR and the value locked in the system? Like, what's the right way to think about that? Is that even relevant? But I'm curious, what's that value of the token and why do you think it's underappreciated in the market, overappreciated? I'm just kind of curious what your views are on MKR. It's uh, because, you know, crypto is an attention economy and uh, Maker has always been exceedingly good at building actual, well, I mean, we've been very slow, but we've been very good at building, you know, solid, actual, functional economic primitives, right? And, and, uh, and uh, you know, well, I feel, I feel like you have to be slow because you're the central bank. No central bank in the world should be pretty fast in breaking stuff. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, at the same time, there's been a lot of issues to sort of go down that tangent, right? Actually, Maker has been, it's more like, it's not just slow, but also we've been very, we've made the wrong operational decisions, sort of. So Maker has spent many years doing a lot of random side projects that turn out to be pointless. So it's not, I mean, so it's like, it's extra slow, right? Because we weren't just like slowly building our course up. We were also like slowly building random distractions that the governance process weren't able to do. Like it wasn't able to control prioritization and, and made a lot of wrong decisions like that. But anyway, but I mean, and well, and, and all of that contributes to just this like boomer label, right? That, that Maker has, that it's just like the most boring. It's like the furthest away from like a meme coin, right? That, that an exciting new shiny meme coin that you could possibly get. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, kind of the, the data and the, the statistics and so on sort of speaks for itself. But I think basically at this point, the market psychology is just so like incredibly entrenched, right? That it's just like, it's like, it's like MKR is like a reverse meme coin in a sense, right? It's just like fully sort of uh, doomed to, to uh, not be exciting. Um, of course, until that's not the case anymore, right? But uh, mm. from my perspective, I really don't think, I mean, the great thing about fundamentals and surplus cash flow and all this thing, is just like, they can't, you know, it's like gravity, right? So mm -hmm. uh, the thing that that's matters is not, it's never going to be the price of MKR or the adoption of MKR. It's always going to be the adoption of DAI, right? The, the, mm -hmm. the actual okay. business, right? Yeah. And, and maybe just if you could comment on the second question, which was how we should, how you think about the relationship between, to your point around the adoption of DAI and the value that is locked in the system relative to the value of the governance token itself, MKR, which is at the moment like a, a factor of, of 10. How do you see that relationship evolving over time? Well, I mean, so the mechanism is, well, I mean, in the past, it's been extremely simple, right? It's really just, as the, as the system generates a surplus, it uses that to buy and burn um, the MKR token. And then with Endgame, it's, I mean, fundamentally, it's going to be the same. It's just going to be more sophisticated. So like, for instance, the initial kind of uh, when the burn gets turned back on, right, with this new upgrade that's coming, it'll not just be 
buy and burn, it'll be buy and make uh, as sort of the default setting, which means instead of like directly just like buying up the tokens um, and then burning them, it's like using using surplus to basically buy 50% MKR, uh, I mean 50% governance tokens, and then take 50% die and then market make it in Uniswap, for instance. So you don't just like uh, sort of one-off uh, uh, kind of transfer the value into the market uh, to the whatever, whoever's selling at that point in time, but rather you build up this more like long-term durable value that sits and helps, um, you know, provide liquidity and value for the token in the marketplace. All right, quick break from the show. There is this kind of overused cliche saying in crypto, but it's true. Bear markets are building and everyone tells you that and everyone knows it. What people don't know is that if you're building apps in crypto and building apps in Web3 without using QuickNode, you are building on hard mode. So QuickNode is, is this amazing blockchain development platform. It reduces costs, streamlines the time to market for your app, and it offers consistent performance at scale. For folks that have built apps, you will know that there are a couple key points here. One, QuickNode offers unlimited endpoints across 18 different chains and 35 different networks. They have response times that are two and a half times faster than any of their competitors, 99.99% uptime and a dedicated 24-7 customer support team. If you've been listening to Empire for a while, you might know that I am no gigabrain developer, but I do know a lot of devs and a lot of great product teams at other places. So when I see Coinbase and Twitter and Adobe and OpenSea and Dune Analytics, all leveraging and trusting QuickNode to power their business, that's when we get excited and that's when we want to partner with them. They're the best solution for any leading crypto and Web3 company that is seeking an end-to-end blockchain development platform right out of the box. So my message to you, get off hard mode, let QuickNode handle the blockchain infrastructure, let QuickNode handle the security, let QuickNode handle the performance while you focus on building beautiful products for your users. Visit quicknode.com, super easy. You can use code EMPIRE. You'll get a free month on their build plan. So don't forget to use code EMPIRE. Santi and I got to get credit for this one so they know that we sent you and you will get a first month free. Hope you guys enjoy it. Rune, can we uh, transition into talking about the end game? And specifically, maybe I think the best way to do this, just because there's there's so much here, is to talk about the the five phases here, right? We've got the we've got the new brand, we've got a new stablecoin, governance token, a bunch of sub DAOs um, that are kind of distributed through like farming and governance and AI tools. Um, maybe if you could just walk us through the five phases of this end game uh, that you published three weeks ago, I think that'd be a, a good starting place here. Yeah. So, yeah. So end game has always had this kind of step by step kind of approach to it, right? That the idea is to I mean, to to the point we were talking about earlier of like, we need to like solidify the rules and sort of like scope out, this is what it is. And this is, these are the immutable parts of it. Uh, And then uh, uh, kind of decentralized governance and and a decentralized kind of stack can, an ecosystem can develop around that because the core pillars are, are fixed, right? So the five phases are basically rolling out and deploying these core immutable pillars until uh, the project reaches then what we call the end game state, which is this like final immutable state. That's it's, it's sort of, uh, it can be described as like a Bitcoin like, right. Where sort of like, this is how it works. This is what it does. Uh, and then there's a lot of opportunity to do things with it. Right. So 
Um, the very first stage is, uh, I mean, it's, it was, this is what we call the beta launch. It's really kind of like the launch, the, the, the you know, this, what do you call it? The starting uh, shot for like the whole transition to end game and the beginning of these phases. So the big focus, focus for the first phase is um, the, uh, the new brand. Uh, and the reason why we need a new brand, I mean, <laughs> I actually noticed at the beginning of this, podcast right you introduced that there's like two brands in maker maker dot right there's M there's maker and this die and i mean yeah we were just discussing kind of like the boomer and, and but also there's the other thing with maker and sort of the brand is also the complexity right that it's like known and sort of kind of recognized as being yeah it's very difficult to understand right in in some cases and and right down to the brand, it, it sort of helps reinforce this a bit because today there's like two brands that are actually not naturally related. And so that's something that um, I re I mean, even though I came up with the, you know, I came up with the original brands and I sort of, uh, you know, I was really, really sort of emotionally attached to them. Right. But it's, it's obvious to me, like based on kind of modern marketing science, that it's just not a good situation to be in to have the brand itself contribute to sort of the, complexity and kind of multi-dimensionality right uh when someone first gets into it right it should be as simple as possible so um so basically uh the rebrand is all about like sort of working with global top tier branding and and user experience uh agencies to kind of rethink what should have maximally user-friendly and fun stable coin and sort of finance experience for regular people look like all the way from like the brand to the website and the user experience and the products, right? Everything should be sort of entirely centered around how to make it easy and simple and feel safe. And then also be fun and interesting to participate. Um, Rune, are there any brands just so I can almost like envision something? Are there any brands that come to mind that we can start to think about? Like, do you think about other maybe fintech apps like a public.com or a, or a Robinhood, like are those who you're going for? Or are you going for like a that like maybe paint the picture for us a little more if you if you have something in mind? Uh, I mean, it's hard to I think it's hard to come with a perfect uh, analogy because I think I th I don't think anyone else in crypto is doing a great job either for the most part. Yeah, with, with a few exceptions, I guess, but I don't think there's anything I would compare to like what uh, what I'm hoping for will be the output of, of this. Um, but I mean, I, I guess, uh, like, I feel like Robinhood might be a good example because it's sort of, you've got this, I mean, you've got the name itself helps explain the feeling and kind of the, the experience they want to elicit. Right. Um, of course that's, I mean, Robinhood as a brand would not be suitable for currency at all. Right. So we need a brand, it needs to be different than that. Like it's not, you know, because what we need is something that basically communicates stability and reliability and simplicity, but then also this kind of, you know, this sort of the fun and the experience and, and the, the, the frontierness of, of crypto, right. Which is what especially uh, maker and die in Endgame can deliver with all the new features that are coming. I mean, the one last thing I want to call out for phase one is that, so because the whole, kind of cornerstone of this, like the, you know, the fun, uh, um, you know, financial inclusion user experience that we're, we aim to develop and, you know, broadly distribute right across the globe. Uh, 
the cornerstone of that is the, the kind of the farming and the yield uh, use experience, right? Which we want to make available to, you know, as many people as possible all over the world. Uh, and then I'll just make sure to call out that, um, unfortunately, American users will be blocked from this, right? But basically everywhere else, for the most part, the goal is to make this available uh, in a way where unlike all, I mean, a lot of crypto is already doing yield, right? And doing farming. Um, but very often it's like tied to like Ponzi schemes and hastily put together dangerous uh, smart contracts and so on, right? And so what we want to do is deliver that in a way that's as safe as it possibly can be, right? Which is what Maker is all about. And then it's ultimately a stablecoin product you're using, right? It's not some kind of, uh, yeah, I mean, thing that's going to crash or make you lose all your money or so on, right? But we can still deliver this you know, this feeling of you can choose to farm different things. Um, it's kind of like, it feels a little bit like a game rather than boring online banking or something like that, right? So the the, the first feature that we'll launch will be the ability to farm um, this new governance token, right? So as a part of the, um, as a part of the, the new brand, there's going to be a completely brand new stablecoin and a completely brand new governance token. Um, and the reason why there's new tokens coming is because we, at, you know, while we have a, a new brand and we're sort of upgrading the project to this new brand and, and sort of the new uh, architecture and feature set, we don't want to like mess with DAI and MPR, right? So like normal people or crypto people or whatever that use DAI and they're happy with DAI, they shouldn't be disturbed with by the, the end game stuff, right? And same for MPR, like you shouldn't be feel the need, you know, like feel forced to upgrade your tokens or do something with your tokens or worry about what's going to happen to my money or something like that. Right. So, so dynamic PR will like remain in place forever. And that will be sort of a, you know, a key uh, promise of, of, um, you know, these immutable rules is that they will just stay forever as sort of two, I guess you could say two uh, separate independent products provided by this new, kind of umbrella brand in a sense, right? And then there's also going to be um, a new stablecoin and a new governance token that will be completely aligned and, and sort of unified with this brand and have this kind of central focus on on juice experience and onboarding and and uh, making a saving and uh, a fun experience. Well, the new, how do you think about the new stablecoin taking away from from DAI? Or is the, or is the new stablecoin just wrapped DAI? Yeah, so it's, it's uh, well. So the thing, the funny thing about Dai is that Dai, what we call Dai, is actually like an ERC twenty wrapper of you could say the real Dai, which sits internally in the right, uh, right. the Maker Protocol accounting. So this new stablecoin is actually just a different wrapper of the same underlying uh, thing. Uh, but I think the, the question that's more important is how we're going to seed liquidity for the new stablecoin. Yeah, how do you incentivize? That's what I was getting. Is like how do you really incentivize liquidity for the new for the new stablecoin? Yeah. So. Um, so Dai today, like the kind of the cornerstone of Dai's liquidity today is, is these um, you know giant smart contracts called the PSMs, right? Which are these uh, smart contracts that holds massive amount, like billions of, of centralized stablecoins uh, that allow people to swap their Dai one to one with USDC and GUSD and USDP, right? And uh, so that 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 provides the kind of I mean, what that does is it provides a lot of this arbitrage opportunity that ensures that there's, there's arbitrages that then trade against the PSMs and then they sort of uh, basically um, enforce the peg out in the marketplace. And so 
and this is actually also in beta launch, we're also going to launch the first version of what we call the allocation system, which is kind of like the new uh, mechanism that will eventually fully replace uh, the old vault system, like the native vault system of like the old school sort of the CDP system, basically. That'll actually, over time, eventually, not in the first phase, uh, but eventually will be fully deprecated as a feature of the core system to be replaced by this thing called the allocation system. And so what the allocation system is, is this kind of, um, it's almost like an, it's kind of like a parallelized, well, a set of parallelized intermediaries that generate DAI directly from the maker protocol. And then they sort of go out and allocate it into the marketplace. So, um, so the new stablecoin will have, uh, will sort of take over the liquidity that's currently sitting in the PSMs. But the big difference is that instead of being, um, you know, instead of just like sitting in a smart contract where arbitrages then trade against it and then arbitrage against Uniswap or whatever, the allocation system will inject that liquidity straight out on, for instance, Uniswap uh, and other places. So, so, um, so my expectation is that right from the moment the new stablecoin launches, it will be like vastly more liquid from the point of view of the average user because all that liquidity that right now is sitting there sort of hidden away in smart contracts, really only reachable by, by mu bots and arbitrages, that'll instead be sitting out on the, um, you know, out on the decentralized exchanges in the order books. Uh, and and for the and for, that means that for the regular user, they're going to likely pay a lower spread, for instance. And also, on mo- they'll have access to liquidity on more exchanges. Got it. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. What about um, maybe walk us into phase two? Yeah, that was phase one. So that was phase one. Um, so in phase two, that's like the big, that's like the full launch. Um, and the full launch is all about subdows. One of the key roles that the subdows have is to, you know, sort of take over most of the complexity and most of the decision making uh, responsibility that maker governance has today. So it's kind of like yeah, it's like maker breaking itself into many different uh, or rather sort of breaking off multiple independent uh, unique DAOs that then take over a lot of the responsibility that currently is done top down by maker core, but instead will be done by these independent subunits. Uh, and then maker core will be like, like very, very rigid, a lot less flexible than it is today with a lot less kind of, possibility for change than that ha- has been possible in the past in maker core but the sub will be the exact opposite so they'll be like way more flexible and way more like fast moving and experimental and innovative and growth focused um, and on top of that they'll have this focus on like culture and you know memes and marketing and narrative and all the stuff that maker kind of just like failed badly at right because it was just like too slow moving and too sort of never was was never built around that as a core pillar, right? Where the subdials are kind of explicitly all about trying to tap into the fact that there are, I mean, many different demographics in crypto and you can appeal to each differently, right? So yeah, those will launch in the full launch. And that's kind of when I think, you know, um, mm-hmm. I mean, if we execute everything correctly and we don't drop the ball on this, that's gonna like, you know, signal a new era of, of DeFi and crypto, I think, right? Because it will be basically, the simultaneous launch of six uh, fully decentralized, sort of born decentralized DAOs, right? That will, you know, will actually embody like the true meaning of a fair launch because the only way their tokens will be distributed will be through farming 
mm-hmm. and it will be like completely known in advance and it'll be completely transparent around like who's getting the tokens, how are they getting distributed, mm-hmm. what's the risk for farming them, right? And it's available to the holders of the new stable coin. So maximally broad yeah. uh, distribution. I'm curious, um, I think the mechanism sounds um, like, I think it's intuitive. You did mention your crypto is an attention game. When I hear you say you're going to launch six different sub DAOs, I am worried about how you capture attention and the retention of that attention. How do you think about all that? Yeah. So I, I mean, and I guess you're, you mean like, um, ideally what we want to see is this like massive community building around the sub DAOs, right. And a big splash and a big, a, a big influx of attention. Um, but I actually think that, I mean, and the, the, the kind of the tokenomics and the, the plan around the rollup is, is, is kind of built around that instead of being like, you know, a crazy sort of thunderclap right from the, the second it starts, it's a little bit more like a kind of, you know, a step-by-step thing where ideally what happens first is you get this kind of, you know, hardcore, ins- I mean, I don't call it, not inside a community, right? But like enthusiast community of people who are genuinely interested in like, seeing, I mean, trying out this experiment of we can build up a new fully decentralized DAO and community and culture from the, from the ground up, right? Where we know like mathematically, provably that there's not going to be some like founders allocation or foundation or whatever, right? It's going to be entirely in the hands of the community from the moment it launches. And there's going to be, you know, there's multiples of them, right? So they can specialize in different things. And that also means you can have like self-selection, right? If you've got a bunch of people that want to go in one direction and focus on one thing, then they don't have to like politically struggle with people who want to do a different thing. They just go to each of their own subtow, right? So um, my my hope is that what we'll see is some relatively small, but, you know, very aligned communities emerge of people that just find themselves or like among sort of interesting um, uh, mm-hmm. sort of a companions, right? Where they can they can farm these tokens together and then they can use all of these very, very powerful tools that, you know, the sort of the end game design and the maker makes available to them to generate real fundamental value, right? Because ultimately, while the sub a lot of it is about sort of what I call intangible value, right? It's about like farming and getting people in and, and kind of uh, gamification, right? And having fun kind of participating in DeFi. But in the end, that's just like, I mean, all of that is just the cherry on top of like the underlying, you know, much more important uh, foundation from it, for it, which mm-hmm. is fundamental value, right? Where what the subdows really do in the end is, as I was saying earlier, right? They, they kind of like split out and, and take over some of these fundamental core uh, functions that, that, um, mm-hmm. uh, that maker governance currently runs. What's been the reaction of existing MKR holders to this proposal? Uh, I mean, there's been, I guess you could say, mixed reactions, right? But uh, I would say overall, like, I mean, for the most part, what I've seen is that people who are like really deep in the in the project, initially they were just like, what? I mean, they were like as disillusioned as, as me, right? Um, and uh, then uh, as they've basically been following this and participating in it over the last, I mean, literally at this point, I think it's like, well, it's a long time, right? One and a half year, I think, or something. 
it's a very long time that that this massive plan has been fleshed out through all these like public calls and you know super long documents right and feedback sessions and um you know iterations after iterations right uh i think that that um i mean of the people who are actually deep into the who have a lot of skin in the game and who are deep into the the project at this point there's a lot of i mean excitement and, and alignment around this right then there's also i mean there's been people i mean well i would say more like uh, funds that have been a little bit more on the like they've basically not they've never like fully kind of you know understood it right because it, it takes a lot of effort to understand it in sort of its earlier in these like earlier iter- iterative phases right where it's a lot more like how the sausage is made and a lot less a slogan of like you know we you know resilience and growth through sub thousand ai or whatever right and um yeah, I mean, th- there's there were some uh, some uh, you know um, uh, uh, kind of notable political battles over it, um, mm-hmm. but ultimately, I mean, the kind of voter apathy prevailed, right? the The reality is just basically nobody uh, votes, and um, uh, mm-hmm. and and so overall, it's just it's it's primarily me and and a few other like. Um, key uh, okay. kind of inside like i mean deeply sort of embedded mkr holders that that uh, that had like the, the by far the majority uh, voting power what uh what are some of the risks that you think about in this new model um i mean the basically the biggest risk is i would i mean this i mean i, I guess you could you could generalize it as execution risk um, but it's maybe something, I mean, it really is just fundamentally that like, it turns out that it's impossible to establish any kind of, um, reliable, resilient political dynamic in a DAO. And like, it just turns out a DAO is impossible. And that may be some kind of law of nature, in which case, uh, end game isn't going to work, but no other DAO is going to work either. I mean, the, the thing is mm-hmm. every single other DAO that exists right now, they just don't even attempt to achieve sort of you know, real decentralization and remain a complex adaptive system, right? Some are like more simple and don't have to fully live up to this, the reality of being a complex adaptive system. Um, but the vast majority, right? I mean, they just actually end up having a central team and a central foundation or whatever, right? Rune, Rune let me ask you, what, why is becoming a DAO or why is staying a DAO and being what I'd almost say like a decentralization maxi here? Like, why is that so important to you? And do you think that you could accomplish the product and the end goal of like having million, billions of people using DAI? Could you accomplish that easier if you were just a centralized company? And and if you could do that, what like why why be so focused on governance here? Uh, I mean, because I think centralized currency in the age of blockchains and artificial intelligence is you know the most powerful tool of slavery you can possibly imagine. I mean. So ultimately, I'm it. I mean, I'm in crypto since you know 2011, right? Reacting to the the great financial crisis, and like the reality is that this is, I mean, that's where it's all going, right? I think that, um, yeah. I mean, I think I mean I think DAOs and decentralized stable coins and blockchain and then things like open source AI. Uh, these are like the two. I mean, these are tools that we simply cannot. Like we can't just like sit around and 
uh, ignore these tools because we have to like fight for the future of how society is fundamentally structured, right? And these are like, this is what's available to us, you know? Um, and uh, so, yeah, like, I think it's really like, it's uh, it's the most important and most interesting challenge possible. Like, is it actually possible to organize people in a way where there doesn't have to be some big boss, some hierarchy, you know, some king at the top that, that runs everything. And then it's all about who knows who and who's got the power, right? But instead, you can actually have people self-organize in a way where they'll just each kind of do whatever is in their own interest, but as an aggregate, they end up doing as a whole sort of what's equally and fairly in everybody's interest, right? And even in sort of the public's interest and the, the um, you know, society's interest, right? How do you grapple with the idea of decentralized governance rune with centralized collateral? Um, and maybe that's a that ties into this topic of real world assets and and it's be, it's become very clear that there is only there's only massive demand for a dollar uh, a dollar denominated or a do, dollar collateralized stablecoin right and the the best way to do that is with real or maybe the only way to do that is with at scale is with real world assets so on one hand you've got this like like I love the mission of like very decentralized governance on the other hand you're bringing more and more I'd almost call them like centralized forms of, of collateral onto the system. Like how do you grapple with those two things and how do you think about that? Yeah. So uh, I think, I mean, and this is also what I'm hoping to accomplish sort of communication related to this as a part of this, uh, the kind of the new brand and the new way to um, kind of explain what maker is. Right. And, and so I think decentralization is a kind of, um, you know, it's a, it's not a very useful word at this point because it's become very kind of loaded and, and sort of, uh, you know, it's got a lot of baggage and it's got a lot of sort of memes and, and, uh, and sort of, um, you know, buzzword to it. Right. And I think a much better word to use to sort of describe what is it we want to actually achieve, right. is resilience. Right. So it's really about like the overall kind of strength, and, and sort of ability for the system to resist, uh, so, I mean, any other kind of um, uh, force, you could say, that wants to impact it, right? Um, and, <clears throat> yeah. I'm sort of curious, like, um, you know, you, you say you're going to codify certain rules. A lot of people are critical of governance tokens. A lot of what we've seen in DeFi farming is the people that initially farmed the token are not the ones that stick around. It's pretty mercenary capital that just moves around. Like maybe if you can, it may not be the case here, but I'm curious how you solve that problem where time and time again, you see these people that don't necessarily, as you said earlier, people are out uh, for their own incentives and that's what drives them. And as soon as either the token farm dries up or it becomes less interesting to them, they quickly go to another project and jump around. And there's a lot of this mercenary capital in DeFi, um, is that the case here? And, and how do you kind of mitigate that behavior and activity? Yeah, so I mean, so again, there's like, there's a whole bunch of, of kind of uh, aspects to that uh, challenge, right? But I think, I mean, I think the most kind of fundamental is this question of, I mean, uh, sustainable economics, right? Like, if you design something like farming the wrong way, then basically what you're doing is like hand away a bunch of money and you're hoping that somehow you'll get a bunch of money back and often you don't. Right. And it's just a big kind of, 
um, it's just a bunch of hot air, right? And then a bunch, few people get rich and, and everyone else sits with a, around with a bunch of worthless tokens, right? So the, the uh, end game tokenomics is designed around this principle of um, uh, value recapture, basically, right? So, I mean, the really, really basic kind of um, driver of how the tokenomics works, right? Is that when you have uh, this new stable coin, you have a bunch of different options available to you, right? So you can, I mean, basically you can farm any of the, the subdot tokens that you want to farm. You can also farm this new governance token. Um, and then the final option is um, this, you know, new version of the die savings rate. So there'll be, of course, rebranded, right? But it's called the new savings rate, right? And these options are mutually exclusive, uh, which is really, really important in the sense that if you, so if you choose to farm something, then you cannot get the, the, the savings rate of the system. And so effectively what that means is um, the system is saving expenses when you're farming tokens instead. And it's ultimately that, I mean, you could really reduce it down to something like what's really happening then is you are sort of trading your, you know, you're trading the yield in, term, in, in cash terms for um, a yield in, uh, in uh, you know, like subbed out token terms. Um, and, and the system is simply going to equilibrate around. Obviously, you, you should always be getting a higher yield in subbed out tokens because they're volatile. Um, but it, it, in the long run, it, you know, it's not, so, I mean, it shouldn't, it wouldn't be possible and it's not sustainable if like to get some kind of crazy high yield in subdot tokens, right? It just doesn't, it, it's not economically possible to, to provide yields that are like above market, right? Because the market's going to find a way to kind of close that gap. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, that's really the fundamental thing, right? Because then what that means is you're, you're, you're ultimately paying in, right in the sense that you are um like you're letting the system uh keep the yield in cash terms and so that value that builds up inside the system then you know is used to maintain the value of the token in the long run right so that 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 um i mean and it's done it does that through this tokenomics um where basically uh you know the subdot tokens uh, they just continuously like they sort of they basically continuously uh, funnel value to the maker, like to sort of make a call by farming the tokens to die holders, right? And also to, to uh, NKR holders, or rather, sorry, new stablecoin holders and new governance token holders. Um, but then make a call also continuously funnels value to um, the subdot token holders. Initially, it's this like relatively crude fixed uh, setup where... Um, the, the the internal treasuries of the subdows receive the equivalent of 3,333 MKR per year, just like a sort of a subsidy that just like gives them a bunch of cash denominated in MKR, right? So if the value of MKR goes up, then the subdow gets more money for its treasury. And then on top of that, there is this like farming uh, functionality of also the subdow tokens. And this is kind of like a principle that I've, I've learned, right? That in DeFi with a token, you always got to be able to do something with a token, right? So the thing you can do with subdot tokens is you can use them to farm these new governance tokens. Uh, and this is also the equivalent of 3,333 MPR that you'll be able to farm per year with each of these subdot tokens. Um, and then because as the subdot tokens are distributed, makers are able to capture that value because you're not getting the, the savings rate 
uh, that means that that value then so this was stored up inside the MKR token, essentially, right? Uh, and then you get it delivered back on this sort of linear sort of, you know, um, uh, paste uh, uh, funnel of value back and forth, basically. Hmm. Rune, maybe you can take us into uh, stages four and five here, right? So stage uh, or fa- phases four and five. Phase one was the beta launch, which is kind of this focus on establishing the unified brand. Phase two is the sub DAO launch. So we've got these couple different, we have, I think it was, you said five or six, I think it was six different sub DAOs. Maybe take us into phases three and four. Um, and I'm combining both of those because they're both related to governance, right? So maybe, yeah, if you could walk us through that, that'd be great. Yeah. So once we've established the subdials, which kind of, I mean, yeah, it's like the setting off kind of like the growth and the expansion of the ecosystem, right? Uh, then, yeah, like then the next focus is consolidating the governance and kind of like getting ready for like, uh, having the system actually be able to run itself fully decentralized uh, permanently, right? And so the first and most important, well, I don't know most important, but the first step that's like a prerequisite that needs to be in place before we can really sort of lock things down fully is, um, yeah, like getting the governance uh, kind of, getting the governance into this um, decentralized equilibrium, which is one of the key characteristics of the decentralized equilibrium is that outsiders kind of peripheral participants, right? Even like stablecoin holders and also just like small scale uh, token holders, they need to sort of be able to be a, an effective check on the much more powerful insiders and the whales and the, you know, uh, master politicians and bureaucrats and, and power brokers in the system, right? Basically, everyone needs to be held to the rules, no matter what. And it must be impossible for someone to kind of like, you know, fudge their way uh, out of being held accountable to the rules, right? And the and that and then I mean yeah we were talking about all this like thing about like these codified rules and all this stuff right but so what phase three is all about is basically adding artificial intelligence to the mix to specifically play the very yeah specific role of um, solving the the um, the complexity and information asymmetry that normally exists in a DAO right so today in Maker it's like yeah there's like thirty people that knows how everything works and then there's like thousands of people that just I mean, I mean, they just—they don't realistically have a way to like figure out whether the rules are being followed or not, right? In terms of like the internal power dynamics and governance dynamics and so on, right? So if like the system today or whatever a year ago was like randomly like slippery sloping towards uh, centralization and power consolidation, it would be hard for someone to know before like it's already too late, right? And so, very fundamentally, that's what this like AI. Uh, these AI systems are about. It's basically to be able for for someone to like, like for anyone to be able to tell are the rules currently being followed or not. And if they're not being followed or like if there's risks and sort of inconsistencies, you know, it could be something like, uh, you know, nepotism or kind of like corruption in terms of somebody paying themselves out of a budget or something. Like that'll be very easy to discover if you have AI that's trained and optimized for kind of like, you know, understanding the rules and then comparing the reports and the data that's being um, surfaced by, by the, the, the processes of governance. Um, and then what that means is it can sort of like alert someone on the outside to like, okay, there's, there's some group or some person that is not, that has some, I mean, that is not, uh, you know, publishing the information they're supposed to publish. And somehow all the other 
checks and balances that were supposed to stop them from doing that. They haven't been able to, you know, they're not working. And, and that's the kind of situation that, that then calls for, I mean, the sort of the regular holders to sort of rise up, right? And basically, you know, make some kind of significant change uh, that, 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 you know, that, that modifies the, the, um, the balance of power. Like, uh, you know, this, the, whatever is wrong with the status quo needs to be solved in that kind of situation. And if it doesn't get solved, then what's going to happen is you have like a real governance failure, right? Where you're going to have centralization occur. Um, and the, the kind of like the ultimate um, uh, kind of uh, consequence of this kind of risk is that the whole system shuts down, right? Because you, in the end, you have minority protection uh, because what could happen is if somebody manages to really consolidate power to a point where they get central control, they could, you know, they could take the collateral if you don't have mechanisms in place to to protect from that, right? So to mm-hmm. to sort of never even go down the path at all, we need these very powerful AI tools that can help outsiders, you know, like kind of make sure everything is, is as it should be, right? And and once you have that resilience, that stability, that yeah, when the, when things are happening, we can sort of follow along and we can ensure that the rules are followed. Then you can kind of crank up the 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 pace, right? You can parallelize more things. You can do more stuff, right? You can take more bold bets because you don't have to worry about kind of as these things happen. Then you know something is gonna something dangerous is gonna happen to the underlying uh, uh, like power dynamic or balance of power in the system. Mm. Rune, I, we're coming up on time here, so I want to. There's, there's four. There's two more phases, right? Phase four and phase five. Maybe you could just give like thirty second overviews on each of those. Just I know, I know that's a tough thing to do. We'll we'll put a link to all of the information that you that you've already written pretty extensively about, so people can read it if they have more questions. Because I've a I've a few other maybe like second order impact questions from this. So maybe if you could give a couple of thirty second overviews on phases four and five, and then we can get into some details that I have. Yeah, absolutely. So phase four is then. Uh, kind of, yeah, well, it's called governance participation rewards is sort of the headline of it, right? So this is a point where, okay, we've got the AI tools in place, which means now the governance dynamic is able to sort of uh, self-police its equilibrium, right? It's decentralized equilibrium, right? So like sort of, you can actually have the system sort of run an autopilot. And if the autopilot, I mean, sort of like run itself, quote unquote, right? And if it starts uh, kind of going off the tracks, you'll be able to know and people will have the means to step in because the AI t- tools will sort of help them to identify what's wrong and how do you fix it, right? And so phase four is then putting in place uh, basically rewards for participating in governance, um, which solves the problem of voter apathy uh, because now you get paid to vote, right? Basically when, when, we, when phase four starts. But paying people to vote is itself like super dangerous unless you've got all these like preceding things in place, right? You've got the rules in place and they're solid and immutable. And then you've got the AI tools in place that makes it very easy to understand or like, are these delegates and these kind of insiders that have, you know, that are, that are kind of like leveraging all of this paid incentivized voting power, are they going off the tracks? And if that's the case, how do we deal with it when, when they've got so much power, right? Because that's kind of, I mean, once you pay people to vote, you create this massive amount of kind of somewhat unaccountable uh, governance power in the system, right? Because most people who then vote, they're not doing it because they actually care about voting. They're doing it mostly because they care about getting paid, right? So yeah, so all the preceding phases kind of allow that to be done safely. And then, I mean, actually, to some extent, the system is, is uh, I mean, you're very close to have the system be fully done. Uh, phase five is then 
Uh, I mean, it's by far the largest kind of phase of all, but it doesn't, in some sense, it doesn't introduce anything new. It's simply uh, then kind of re-architects and redesigns and re-implements everything from the bottom up in the most efficient and future-proof possible state, which is on its own sort of um, special purpose blockchain. Uh, and the only, you could say, new feature that then actually ends up being like, it's the biggest feature of all, but it's so, I don't know, like, it's so ad kind of um, advanced, or I don't know what to call it. Like, it's it's so specific why this feature matters that most people, they don't even know it's a feature, right? But this is basically this, like, shutdown mechanism I was talking about earlier. This kind of, like, final escalation uh, uh, kind of option that's available in the governance of the system, right? Which today, it's something called emergency shutdown. Uh, that allows the minority, um, the minority of MKR holders today can like shut down the maker system, uh, even if they don't have a majority of the voting power, and they can do that to then like prevent someone from like taking central control and and fully stealing all the money in the system or centralizing it. And the the big problem is like such a shutdown would be absolutely disastrous in the way that it's it's built today. And so with the new blockchain, instead of doing a shutdown, you can do a hard fork, and that means that. The system can recover from even the worst case, well, rather many of the worst case scenarios in terms of um, uh, kind of like uh, governance attack edge cases, uh, which is not the case today. And, and basically, it's not fully sustainable, the, 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 mm. the power dynamic of today, where once you've got a, a, a kind of a sovereign blockchain that can hard fork by itself, then you, you've got something that is, I mean, that reaches a point where like now it's it's a fully sustainable design that can sort of. Uh, last through the the ages. Rune, what are you optimizing for here? The when you talk about the end game, like okay, so when you shared your story of the last eight years, it felt like every like maybe two or three years ago you tried to leave Maker or like take a step back from Maker, um, and then you're like, ah, no, 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 the system's not set up yet for me to do that. I need to jump back in. Are you optimizing for? Like a part of this feels like you're optimizing for you being able to leave Maker. Is that a fair thing? To, is that yes? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's always been like the litmus okay. test of a doubt, right? I mean, it's pointless if I can't leave, right? So yeah, you could say that's like, I mean, but it's not just like, I mean, of course I want to, to I mean, leave and, and do other things and relax and so on. But I mean, much more importantly, it's just, it's like, it's the fundamental test of whether the thing works or not, right? Mm-hmm. Let me, can I push back on this? So here's, here's the counter take to all of this. So I, I, I really like like the grand ambition and everything that you're working towards. And it's clear that you put a ridiculous amount of time into thinking about this. The counter take um, would be that this completely wrecks die and maker and that AI tools can't paper over governance issues and that you're blocking US users um, from participating but a lot of the assets in terms of the real world assets are actually in the u.s financial system what how would you if that if I, I have a feeling as the end game continues to get rolled out and built those will be kind of the three buckets of pushback how do you think about those three buckets well i mean so like dynamic AR isn't going to change right so even if the new features don't have the kind of the the um like as much of a, a an, let's call it immediate impact as as I definitely expect they have, right? Then they're not really going to alter sort of the fundamental um, 
like basic features of dynamic AR, basically. Like what they're going to do is they're going to introduce this kind of future-proofed and sustainable self-organizing system, right? That's going to allow this. I mean, it, there's definitely sort of, the, I mean, there's this sort of, you could call it a theoretical underpinning that would allow governance to run itself and not require whales to vote as they do today, right? And then if that's the only thing it achieves, then not, and, and dynamic AR just stays the way they are, but now they don't rely on whales anymore, then I think that's by itself also success, right? And then as it relates to like real assets and regulation, I mean, basically, um, I mean, it's a it's the number one challenge that like any crypto project that cares about success and adoption and growth and so on uh, is grappling with and should be grappling with, right? And it's just, I mean, it's a, it's very hard. Like it, that's always been like, it's always been very difficult and it's always been very kind of ever changing. Right. Um, and currently we think we have like a good solution, right. Of how to navigate global regulation. Uh, but the reality is it's going to change over time and sort of having that, I mean, one of the key things that, um, I mean, one of the, I mean, that's one of the sort of the things that Endgame really optimizes for, right. And, and, and sort of buckets under, resilience, right? This is the core component of resilience is sort of adaptability to, um, to like the regulatory landscape, right? And the regulatory reality. And I mean, one of the things it also does kind of optimize for and, and uh, make possible is this, you know, what used to be called the Phoenix stance and used to be sort of a meme around Endgame, right? That, that there is a possibility that at some point you have to, uh, despite how you know, costly and, and, and devastating would be, you have to completely untether from the real world, right? And like drop the, the US dollar pack and all of that. Um, and the mechanism for sort of how to detect when that is required and then sort of step-by-step step moving in that direction, they're actually built into the rule sets um, so that they can, that can sort of dynamically occur, right? Just like something like uh, the US dollar hyperinflates and just stops being the reserve currency kind of the ability to adapt to that is also something that has to be kind of codified into the system, right? Because it, like these core rules have to, you know, be able to carry the system forever, essentially. Rune, anything else? I mean, I've, I feel like we could go on for a long time here, but I know we're coming up on time. Anything uh, anything else that you just feel is really pressing and that you feel like uh, we, we, we haven't discussed, but that folks need to know? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think actually there's a, there's a good sort of rounding of the, I guess, the most interesting, more immediate uh, topics to cover. I mean, I think one thing that I want to maybe talk a little bit about is this thing called the allocation system. So we were touching upon that a little bit. We're like, this is how there's going to be lots of liquidity for the new stablecoin right as it launches, right? But what's really exciting about that is how that migrates, like how the responsibility for that system is going to sit with the type of sub-DAO called the allocator DAO. And these allocator DAOs will then basically compete with each other to kind of wield the economic power of of uh, you know, make a call and the die collateral portfolio, and I'm really excited about like all the possibilities, like all the business opportunities, all the possibilities, all the the jobs basically that will be created out of companies and hackers and uh, other DAOs and so on, sort of like coming with all their little like all these little building blocks you can build into to allocator DAOs that that will sort of funnel die and and new stable to the most optimal places where you can sort of put them, right? So it's kind of like, it's 
like today it's a very inefficient version of that is happening where you've got arbitrages like locking in ethereum and then borrowing super cheaply from from maker and then going out and doing stuff with it in the ecosystem and in the future it'll be you know the ecosystem itself organically and and sort of competitively kind of just evolving and expanding and reaching out and finding these economically optimal places to distribute the, the, the stable coins to. And then because it's directly distributing there, it's not letting arbitrage just doing the work, right? It's going to capture a lot of that value and kind of bring it back into the core of the system. And then that's going to directly then affect things like the savings rate the system can offer. And by affecting the savings rate, the system it's going to like ribble through things like the farming yield and, and sort of all the efficiency of the system, right? So it's like the system gets a lot more efficient and it's going to deliver that efficiency to users and to ecosystem participants and contributors and basically take it away from like MEV bots and arbitrages. Huh, very cool. I mean, this is basically just a... There are product updates here, but this is basically a massive budget allocation problem that you're trying to solve here. Um, and it's, <laughs> yeah, it's really impressive. So I'm, I, uh, I think Santi and I are rooting for you, Rune. Uh, you got a, you got a big problem at hand. Uh, and yeah, this is a, a budget allocation problem that you're trying to solve, but really the next couple of years, it seems like are just, it's about the execution. So it'll be fun to see, uh, how things go. Absolutely. will be fun. Yeah, man. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon, man. Rune, thanks for coming on. This is helpful. Thank you. 